This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. From Malcolm Gladwell and Panoply Media, check out the new season of Revisionist History, a podcast that looks at events from the past and asks whether we got it right the first time. This season will explore a murder trial from the Jim Crow South telling the story of a terrorist who had a change of heart. There'll be French fries, the saddest song in the world, making mischief, putting crazy theories to the test, and I could go on. It's going to be a wild ride, so listen to Revisionist History in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let me tell you about a no-brainer way to improve your finances. Stop letting the big banks use you as their ATM. Every week, thousands are switching from big banks and opening checking accounts at Aspiration because they're fed up with outrageous and wimpy interest rates. Aspiration will pay you up to 100 times the interest paid by big banks, and you'll have totally free access to every ATM in the world. And Aspiration is a financial firm with a conscience. They give a full 10% of their earnings to charity and let you see your own sustainability score on your purchases. Check it out at aspiration.com slash kickass. And now, enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis, and welcome to Kick-Ass News. You might know men like George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and John Adams as the nation's founding fathers. But do you know who Mum Bet was? How about Mercy Otis Warren and her brother James Otis Jr.? Or an Iroquois chief named Kanasa Tego? My guest today says these are just a few of the players in America's founding who've been passed over or deliberately ignored by progressive revisionists, and he's attempting to restore these figures to their proper place among America's founding fathers with a new book called Written Out of History, The Forgotten Founders Who Fought Big Government. Today, the author of Written Out of History, Senator Mike Lee, returns to the podcast to talk about it. Elected in 2010 as Utah's 16th senator, Mike Lee has spent his career defending the basic liberties of Americans as a tireless advocate for our founding constitutional principles. Senator Lee acquired a deep respect for the Constitution early on, watching his father, Rex Lee, who served as Solicitor General under President Ronald Reagan, argue cases before the Supreme Court. Later, Lee spent several years as an attorney with the law firm of Sidley and Austin, specializing in appellate and Supreme Court litigation, and then served as assistant U.S. attorney in Salt Lake City, arguing cases before the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit, before clerking for Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito. As a U.S. Senator, he serves on the Judiciary Committee, the Commerce Committee, the Energy and Natural Resources Committee, the Joint Economic Committee, and is the chairman of the Senate Steering Committee. His previous books include Our Lost Constitution and The Freedom Agenda. And today, he joins me to talk about some of the most influential figures you've never heard of in U.S. history and the aspects of founders Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton that you won't see in the Broadway musical Hamilton. He discusses why some of the most important founding fathers were those who refused to sign the Constitution and why their stubborn resistance may have been vindicated by history. 
He discusses the Iroquois chief who had a profound impact on Benjamin Franklin, the slave woman who won her freedom and paved the way for emancipation, and the founding father who influenced everything from the Declaration of Independence to the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Plus, Senator Lee explains why not all executive orders are bad, why he thinks it's time to wrap up the Russia investigation, and whether or not the Founding Fathers intended for the U.S. Constitution to be a living, breathing document. Coming up with Senator Mike Lee in just a moment. Senator Mike Lee of Utah is a tireless advocate for constitutionally limited government, a former federal prosecutor and appellate litigator who previously worked as a law clerk to Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito. He serves in the Senate on the Judiciary Committee, the Commerce Committee, the Energy and Natural Resources Committee, the Joint Economic Committee, and is the chairman of the Senate Steering Committee. His previous books include Our Lost Constitution and The Freedom Agenda, and today he returns to the show to talk about his latest book titled Written Out of History, The Forgotten Founders Who Fought Big Government. Senator Lee, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much, Ben. It's good to be with you. Well, Written Out of History is a tribute to a handful of unsung heroes who made crucial contributions to our republic. They include women, slaves, even an Iroquois chief, among others. How is it that so many of these figures have been lost to history, Senator Lee? You know, in many ways, it's really no coincidence. Their stories are inconsistent with what many of us have been taught, and they're also inconvenient for those who would have us believe that government is the right solution for just about everything and that every government solution should be handled at the federal level. Are you saying then that many of these people were deliberately written out of history? Yes, yes. In some cases, it might have occurred through benign neglect, but in many others, if not most, it, it, it occurred as a result of the fact that these are people who took a stand, but it's a stand that has not been viewed favorably in recent decades, uh, as the progressive movement has convinced many people that we ought to just centralize government power in America, it's almost been accepted as a sort of gospel truth. And that's part of what I'm trying to unwind with this book, is to tell the story of uh, eight, eight early Americans whose stories have been neglected, forgotten, or as I put it, written out of history, but whose stories have something to tell us about freedom, about liberty, what it means to be an American. Yeah, and I like that you're redefining the Founding Fathers a little bit more broadly. You know, when we decide that only this exclusive club of men who attended either the Constitutional Convention or signed the Declaration are the only people who get to qualify as Founding Fathers, you know, isn't it a little bit like saying no American can affect change or do something important unless they're a member of Congress? You know, no offense, Senator, of course. (laughs) Yeah, no, no no offense taken. Yeah, it's, it's a lot like that. People assume that Uh, because certain people didn't attend the Constitutional Convention, they couldn't possibly have had a significant effect on history, and that simply is not true. Uh, There were a lot of people who weren't there at the convention and who don't fit the uh, traditional profile of what we think of as founding fathers. Uh, Some of them, first of all, were founding mothers, and, and there were minorities in this group, and I think their stories need to be told, too. 
You opened by taking on the wildly popular Broadway musical Hamilton, no less. You seem to like that it gets people interested in American history and the Founding Fathers, but you have an issue with the show's portrayal of Alexander Hamilton and Federalists as advocates of big government. Set the record straight for us. What does the play get wrong about them? Look, it's not so much that I have a problem with the play. I actually love the musical score. I, I haven't uh, been able to go to the play yet. Uh, those tickets are still too expensive for for uh, uh, for me, but I, I really like the musical score. What I take issue with is that some people have adopted, in part because of the play's popularity, uh, Alexander Hamilton is sort of a mascot for the progressive movement in America. And I don't think that's fair. I call this the Hamilton effect. Sometimes people will pick people out of history to use to sort of reflect back their own political worldview. It is not fair. It's not accurate to portray Hamilton as a late 18th century progressive. It just doesn't work that way. Hamilton, as I explain in the book, himself argued aggressively that the power given to the federal government under the Constitution was necessarily limited, that it would uh, certainly be dwarfed in comparison to the power held by the states. And so for that reason alone, it's unfair to call Alexander Hamilton uh, a, a champion of the leftist cause. It, it's just not right. And of course, the antagonist of the musical Hamilton is former Vice President Aaron Burr, who famously shot and killed Alexander Hamilton. But you say that Burr was a lot more complex than the villain that he's been reduced to in popular lore. You seem to, I think, even indicate that he could even be seen as something of a political martyr or a victim. As I explained in the book, there's a whole lot more to Aaron Burr than meets the eye. I devoted an entire chapter, chapter one of my book, to him. And what I explain in there is that he uh, was someone who was actually a champion of the accused. When he was vice president of the United States and therefore president of the Senate, he presided over several impeachment trials. He stood up for the rights of those who were accused and were being subjected to the impeachment and removal process. In part because of that, he became uh, an enemy of Thomas Jefferson. And Jefferson, during his second term of office, when Aaron Burr was no longer his vice president, actually went so far as to have Aaron Burr prosecuted for treason, then a, a capital offense. And uh, fortunately, Aaron Burr was able to win his freedom and was able to save his life, given that he would have been executed had he been found guilty. But Jefferson went after him with everything he had, and he played pretty dirty. Yeah, and it's funny to think of someone like Thomas Jefferson as being uh, the stereotype of a nefarious politician, <laughs> power-hungry and so forth. Exactly. And so one of the points I make in the book is that if even a revered early president like Thomas Jefferson, himself the author of the Declaration of Independence, this scintillating document that we associate with life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, with the dignity of the human soul— if even he, as president of the United States, uh, was willing to abuse power in the way that he apparently did, we should always remember that it's important to restrict the power of government because human beings, while redeemable, are flawed. They tend to make mistakes, especially when they're given unchecked power. Yeah, and I believe Aaron Burr's attorney in that trial was Luther Martin, who was another person who you say has been lost to history, but you resurrect his memory in the book. Now, I would imagine that it might be hard for some listeners to understand this, but Luther Martin is actually praised for being one of the delegates to the Constitutional Convention 
who actually refused to sign the Constitution. Why is that a badge of honor in his case? Well, he stood up for principle. He was standing up for the fact that there, there were legitimate concerns to be raised about the accumulation of federal power, about uh, the, the risks that uh, state authority and therefore government accountability in general uh, would face if the Constitution were to move forward and if it were to be implemented in a manner that gave the federal government unlimited power. While those concerns failed fully to materialize for quite some time, they did materialize about 150 years after Luther Martin first raised these concerns, but they materialized quite significantly. And as we look back, it's important sometimes to remember arguments raised by those who uh, weren't successful in arguing what they argued at the time, but made significant points anyway. Yeah, and he wasn't alone in that. You know, we tend to remember the Constitutional Convention as this gathering of honorable men, all in agreement with a singular purpose. But it was actually, it seems, a lot more interesting than that. In fact, you say that there were a number of delegates who not only didn't sign the Constitution, but actively campaigned against it. And it seems like they may have uh, been a little bit prescient. One of them was Elbridge Gerry. I, I devoted an entire chapter to Elbridge Gerry uh, of Massachusetts. Elbridge Gerry was unique in the sense that he was, uh, of the seven signers of the Declar Declaration of Independence who went on to attend the Constitutional, uh, the Constitutional Convention as a delegate, he was the only one of that group of seven who refused to sign his name to the document, who, who refused to sign it. Uh, and he did so in part because he feared what would happen if we gave the federal government too much power, in part because of the absence of a Bill of Rights. He also was the author of uh, the 10th Amendment, part of the Bill of Rights. Uh, the, that's the amendment that says that power is not granted to Congress, shall be reserved to the states or to the people. In Elbridge Gerry's version of that amendment, he said all power is not expressly granted to Congress. Uh, shall be reserved to the states or to the people. <laughs> James Madison took that word expressly out, uh, believing that it was unnecessary. 150 years later, sure enough, it would prove that he might well have had a good reason for wanting to put that in there. And you say that Madison sort of overshadowed him in the history books, huh? Yes, in part because Madison was on the winning side. And yeah. look, it's great. I'm, I'm a big fan of Madison. I think he's fantastic. And I, I I, I am, in, in fact, not somebody who considers myself an anti-federalist. I like to believe that I would have supported ratification of the Constitution because I think that the document contained a, a, a sound series of compromises that would have worked. My point is simply to say that when we forget the arguments raised by the anti-federalists, people like Luther Martin and like Elbridge Gerry, uh, we do so at our own peril. We do so at a grave risk that we're going to forget that there were legitimate arguments against the Constitution that in many ways have, have come to pass. There's another person in this book who's been written out of history and who I've never heard of. He was an Iroquois chief named, I hope I say this right, Canasatego, who you say taught Benjamin Franklin about what I thought was such a uniquely American thing, the separation of powers. Was separation of powers a long-standing idea that the Iroquois had incorporated into their tribal system of government? And how did Canasatego explain this concept? What I sometimes refer to is, as vertical separation of powers. I mean, the horizontal separation of powers refers to the three branches of the government. The, the vertical uh, separation of powers refers to the relationship between the federal government on the one hand and the states and local governments on the other hand. 
it was this latter principle, vertical separation of powers, to which uh, Canasetego spoke, and he was the one who taught Benjamin Franklin about federalism. He's the one who taught Benjamin Franklin that uh, uh, for centuries, the nations of the Iroquois Confederacy had lived in peace uh, because of the fact that they had joined these uh, the, these uh, Indian nations together in a single confederacy for limited purposes. They had an agreement among them that they would defend each other, that they would protect each other, but that they would leave local issues to be decided locally. This worked for them. This, uh, unlike other features of our system of government, w was not something that uh, we got from the English. It was not something that necessarily came from Europe. It was somewhat distinctively American, Native American in particular. But we've forgotten about federalism, and in part because of that, we have found it all too easy uh, to neglect Canasetego. I'm trying to bring his story back and bring federalism back with it. How did Canasetego and Franklin meet? Uh, ben Franklin met him at a conference in, in Albany in 1744. And uh, the, the two of them became friends, and Benjamin Franklin learned a, a lot about uh, how the Iroquois Confederacy governed. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with Senator Mike Lee when we come back in just a moment. Are you a small business that feels overwhelmed because you're managing too much? Free yourself from administrative tasks and focus on your business goals with Belay Virtual Assistant. By matching you with a U.S.-based virtual assistant that aligns with your personality, your work style, and the skills you need, Belay delivers real solutions virtually. No cookie-cutter list of tasks. Belay customizes the experience for each client. Plus, their team guides you through the proven virtual assistant selection process and onboarding so that you're never in this alone. They've been helping the overwhelmed business person for six years, so they know all the best practices and tools to make a virtual assistant successful. And they even alleviate hiring risk by ensuring only the best assistants are brought on to serve their clients. In fact, their virtual assistant application acceptance rate is actually lower than Harvard's. Belay's virtual assistants truly do give you the confidence to climb higher. So get back to doing what only you can do. Get back to what matters, running your business. To learn more about how a Belay virtual assistant can benefit you and the top 25 things Belay clients delegate to their VAs, visit belaysolutions.com slash kickassnews. That's belay, B-E-L-A-Y, solutions.com slash kickassnews. Getting a good night's sleep is easier said than done, especially if you think you've just heard a noise downstairs. Think about it. What do you do in that situation? You could turn on all the lights and keep watch, check your kids' beds every hour, sleep with one eye open, or you can rest easy knowing that your home and your family are protected by Simply Safe. When you install Simply Safe Home Security System, you're arming your home with powerful sensors that actually tell you if a door opens or if a window breaks. There's a 105 decibel siren that alerts you at the first sign of trouble and a dedicated team of security professionals watching over you 24-7 ready to send the police. With Simply Safe, there are no long-term contracts and the around-the-clock monitoring is only 15 bucks a month. So don't spend another night second-guessing your home safety. Get Simply Safe and get some rest. 
Go to simplysafe.com slash listen and get a special 10% off discount when you order today. Again, that's simplysafe, spelled S-I-M-P-L-I-S-A-F-E dot com slash listen for 10% off your order. simplysafe.com slash listen. When severe weather hits, a forecast on your phone just doesn't cut it. You need to know what to do, how to stay safe, and what to expect next. You need the Weather Channel, the nation's most trusted source for severe weather coverage. They go beyond maps and apps with weather experts on the front lines of the storm. The Weather Channel meteorologists make sure you understand the why behind the weather and what steps you need to take to stay safe. And the Weather Channel is exploring our atmosphere like never before. They're leading the way with the use of real-time augmented reality, allowing you to see inside a hurricane, the potential threats of storm surge, or even taking you on a virtual tour inside a tornado. You've never seen weather like this before, and understanding our atmosphere is the best way to prepare for severe weather. Every season, every storm, every time you watch, trust the Weather Channel. And now, back to the podcast. There was a woman who's been marginalized in history named Mercy Otis Warren, but it sounds like for a woman, she actually had quite a bit of influence in the early United States. She was publishing political essays and apparently corresponding with founding fathers, right? She was. She was a friend and protege of John Adams. She was very close to both John and Abigail Adams. As I explain in my book, she had that friendship tested quite severely as a result of disagreements she had with John Adams about the Constitution, about the new system of government. She was afraid that there would arise a sort of aristocracy in miniature, a monarchy in miniature, uh, so to speak, within the United States as a result of this new document, and that we didn't have sufficient constraints surrounding power in Washington. Uh, Fortunately, as I explained in the book, toward the end of their lives, they were able to patch up their friendship. Uh, But one has to wonder whether if Mercy Otis Warren had just uh, done like so many others did and said, this is going to be fine. There are no risks here. Don't worry about the accumulation of power in Washington or or in what would become Washington, D.C., in what they then could have referred to only as uh, uh, what would become our nation's capital, then she probably wouldn't have been written out of history. We probably would remember her. Um, there probably would be more monuments to her and more books about her. Seems like it's a good cautionary tale for the political establishment not to worry so much about your political friendships and making political deals and standing up for what you actually believe. I think we'd all do well to remember that notwithstanding friendships, uh, we can and should speak our own minds. Those two things ought not be inconsistent with each other. Yeah, and apparently her brother also played a pivotal role in what would eventually become the Fourth Amendment, but it seems like his was a a somewhat tragic story, wasn't it? Yes, it was. James Otis, uh, the brother of Mercy Otis Warren, was a big champion for individual liberty, was someone who feared what government would do when it uh, was reckless with its power. He fought against the execution of what were known during the pre-revolution era as writs of assistance. These were sort of open-ended, somewhat fungible search warrants that didn't have a whole lot of specificity in them, that said basically uh, the king's officers may 
enforce the law and may look for evidence of wrongdoing. And with those writs of assistance, they could knock down doors, they could search through people's houses, their papers, their personal effects. James Otis considered this wrong. He fought against it. He fought against it in court. He fought against it in public discussion. Uh, He was later the victim of a severe beating by uh, loyalists to the king, a beating from which he never fully recovered, a beating that affected him for the rest of his life, and he went down as something of a martyr for the cause of liberty. Yeah, and I suppose that you're sort of picking up where he left off, dealing with kind of the digital age equivalents of these things, electronic surveillance, huh? Yes, and that's one of the reasons I wrote this book. One of the points I make in the book is that these concerns that were present at the time of the revolution, at the time of America's founding, at the time of the ratification of the Constitution, they're still around. They've taken on different forms, but the same fundamental concerns, most of them are still there. Today, we don't have writs of assistance, but you know we have had book data collection by the NSA of calling data on every U.S. citizen, whether they've done something wrong or not, whether they have anything to do with an agent of a foreign power or not. Uh, we, we do have uh, the, the, the risk of ongoing abuses of Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, uh, through which the identities of U.S. citizens can be unmasked and then searched in a database. Uh, We're talking not just about calling data, but about the substance of their conversations. These things are inconsistent with at least the spirit, if not also the letter of the Fourth Amendment. And they're a problem, just like they were back in the late 1700s. So James Otis's legacy lives on, I guess. Um, In addition to Mercy Otis Warren, another influential woman in early American history was Mum Bet, who was not only a woman, but she was also a black slave. So she really had the deck stacked against her in those days. How did she win her freedom and pave the way for emancipation of all slaves? I love the story of Mum Bet. It's one of my favorite parts of of written out of history. Uh, This was um, uh, a slave in Massachusetts uh, who prior to the revolution overheard some conversations involving her master, uh, Colonel John Ashley. Uh, Colonel Ashley was involved in the drafting of a document that became known as the Sheffield Declaration that recognized, in essence, that it is the, the right and nature of all human beings, that they're free and equal in a state of nature and before God. Eventually, that language or a variation of it ended up in uh, what John Adams uh, drafted for the Massachusetts Constitution of 1780. And when she became aware that that same language or the same concept written out by her master in the home in which she served in captivity uh, had, uh, had now become part of her new state's constitution, she decided to take action. She uh, marched down the street and into the office of a lawyer named Theodore Sedgwick, who had also been in her master's home and had assisted in drafting that original language. And she said, if, in fact, all human beings are free and equal, why should another human being be allowed to own me? Why should I be owned uh, by Colonel Ashley? And so the two of them took the case to court. She eventually won her freedom. And by so doing, she paved the way for every other slave in America eventually to be freed. Now, it would take uh, uh, another eight decades uh, 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 or or more for that to actually transpire. But that was really the first big step in that direction. She's a hero. And one of the the things that she said that I quote in the book that just gives me the chills every time I think about it is that 
if at any moment prior to her winning her freedom, someone had offered her the chance to be free, to stand as a free woman on this earth, she would have done so even if it meant that she would lose her life at the end of one minute. Wow. She said, even if I had the chance to be free for one minute, I'd take it just to know what it felt like to be free. Yeah, what a bold woman. And I think that you say that more immediately it led to the abolition of slavery within Massachusetts, right? Yes, yes. So that's, you know, we think of the the northern states as the uh, uh, states that were, that did not allow slaves and, and the southern states as slave states. Well, that wasn't always true. There were slaves in the northern states. It's just that uh, the, the, the northern states, one by one, got rid of slavery. Mm-hmm. And that came about in part as a result of the heroic actions of people like Mum and Beth. Well, aside from Aaron Burr, probably the other name that some listeners might know in this book is George Mason. There's, of course, George Mason University in Virginia, and he hasn't entirely been overlooked in the history books. But nonetheless, he's not up there in the pantheon of famous founding fathers like Washington, Adams and Jefferson. Yet you say his fingerprints are all over the Declaration, they're all over the Bill of Rights, and even the UN's Universal Declaration of Human Rights. How has he had such a wide and far-reaching influence? Well, it's part of what happens when uh, someone like George Mason Mason comes to the table with sheer brilliance and uh, raw determination to protect the cause of freedom and to respect the dignity of the individual human soul. George Mason was a reluctant statesman. He never really wanted to be in politics. He, he did so uh, in spite of uh, his disdain for the political process. And he did so because he wanted to be free. Uh, and so this deep passion combined with his raw native political talent uh, made him very influential. And even though we don't remember him as much as Uh, We remember some of the other founding fathers, in part because of his initial opposition to the Constitution. Uh, His fingerprints can be seen everywhere. Well, in the last chapter, you talk about how appalled men like Luther Martin would be at the Obama administration's use of executive orders to circumvent the legislative branch. But now here we are, we have a Republican president, Donald Trump, who's shooting off executive orders even faster than Obama. I mean, Washington, Adams, Jefferson, and Madison collectively signed, I think, only a dozen executive orders when they were president, yet we're four months into this, and President Trump has already signed 37 executive orders. Let me ask you, if a Republican president doesn't break the cycle and set the example, how are we ever going to put a rein on these executive power grabs? As I insisted consistently throughout the Obama administration, not all executive orders are bad. Not all executive okay. orders are alike. There are some executive orders that a president is certainly empowered to issue. Anytime the president is authorized to act, either by a provision of the Constitution itself or uh, legitimately uh, pursuant to a statute has authority, uh, he can do that. We know, for instance, the president is the commander-in-chief of the armed forces. He certainly mm-hmm. has the authority, authority as commander-in-chief to or troop movements to uh, decide what time the uh, taps and, and reveille are played uh, within the military and, 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 and otherwise exercise his constitutional powers. What we worry about with executive orders is not necessarily just with their sheer number 
because this was a, a defense frequently raised within the Obama administration. People were fond of saying if they wanted to defend him. Well, there are Republican presidents who had issued more executive orders than he did. True. That really isn't the point. The, the point is whether or to what extent there is authority to do what the president's doing and whether the president is trying to undo something legitimately done by Congress that the president couldn't do through the legislative process. That's where the concern really lies. And so that's what I'm always on the lookout for. As to the comparison to the early presidents, it's understandable why there were fewer executive orders issued at the time. The government was much smaller. Mm -hmm. The government was much narrower. The country was itself smaller and the federal government for the first 150 years of our republic under the constitution uh, was more restrained. It was more respectful of state and local power. And so the use of executive orders has increased abruptly as we've drifted away from federalism. Um, uh, and that's why I make the point that our drift from federalism uh, facilitates our drift away from separation of powers and vice versa. That's why we've got to restore both of these principles uh, together simultaneously. And we can't do that unless we know the stories behind their reason for existence. Yeah, and this idea of an extremely powerful executive branch is actually a relatively recent phenomenon in our overall history, right? Yes. Uh, look, um, prior to the New Deal era, uh, prior really to the second term of the FDR administration, when the New Deal really got its momentum going. And when the Supreme Court started facilitating uh, what FDR wanted to do. Prior to that time, Congress and the, the federal government in general were pretty respectful of state authority. Prior to the New Deal, during peacetime, you never saw the federal government spending more in a particular year than the combined expenditures of the states. Since the New Deal, that has been the norm. That has basically always been the case now for many decades. So there was a big shift about 80 years ago, and that shift has been a departure from the constitutional norm, from the constitutional text, and from the history. Well, it's no secret that you were hardly a cheerleader for Donald Trump during the GOP primary. Um, I wonder, are you starting to come around? What do you see as his hits and misses so far? Well, look, I, I've been pleasantly surprised, or uh, uh, pleased, I should say, with... Um, a lot of things I've seen out of this presidency. Uh, you, you're right. I was a skeptic. I was um, a, a latecomer uh, to that party, uh, about as late as you can get. And yet I, I've been very encouraged by so much of what I've seen. I'm thrilled, for example, that Neil Gorsuch is on the Supreme Court. I was very pleased when during President Trump's inauguration in his inaugural speech, he said, this, this moment we're celebrating right now represents much more than just a, uh, an end of one administration and a beginning of another. It's about much more than a transfer of power from one political party to another. Mm -hmm. This is about a transfer of power from Washington, D.C. back to the, the American people where the power belongs. That was really rousing. That was a constitutional moment. And his actions so far have, for the most part, reflected that. As an advocate of small government, does it bother you at all that he's pushing a massive federal infrastructure giveaway that no one seems to be asking for? Yes. I, 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 so far from what I can tell, I'm, I'm not a fan of what he's described. I'm at least a skeptic of it because I have yet to see how he could push a trillion dollar infrastructure bill without significantly expanding the uh, 
the, the role of the federal government. Uh, infrastructure, by and large, should not be made federal, at least in the absence of an interstate corridor. It's fine if we want to do that with interstate highways uh, or, or with respect to something that's part of an interstate system like our air travel system. It's quite another thing when we're talking about surface streets, uh, bike paths, things that start and end in the same state. Well, Senator Lee, I'd be remiss if we hung up without talking about the Russia investigation. After James Comey's testimony before the Senate committee, you said that you see no evidence of collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russians, and it's time to wrap things up, to use your words. The story of this investigation seems to be ever-evolving, and there's new information that seems coming out every day. Do you still feel that there's no evidence or reasonable suspicion that something between the Russians and the campaign wasn't above board? I have seen no evidence okay. uh, of, of, of any collusion. Uh, and to my knowledge, there's not a single person, uh, not a single Democrat, not a single Republican, uh, not even from members of the Senate or members of the Intelligence Committee who have access to a whole lot of information than I do. Not a single scintilla of evidence has been produced to suggest that. Well, as a lawyer, I'm sure that you're not someone who throws around terms like evidence and collusion and impeachment lightly. Uh, before we go, as a scholar of the Constitution, I'm hoping that you can clear up one thing for me once and for all. Is there anything in the Constitution or in the writings of any of the founding fathers that would indicate that they intended for the Constitution to be a quote-unquote living, breathing document or any words along those lines? I've always found that term curious, the living, breathing <laughs> Constitution. It's almost as if they want to make it living and breathing so that they can then kill it, or almost <laughs> as if they want to bring up that phrase so that anyone who disagrees with their interpretation of it can be accused of wanting a dead Constitution. Uh, if what they mean, and usually those who use that term uh, are, are using it in a context in which it's uh, uh, quickly made clear that what they want is a constitution that can be bended and molded and crafted, uh, not by the people themselves or their elected representatives in, in the constitution's application, but rather that it can be crafted and molded and distorted and changed by jurists, by men and women wearing black robes on the U.S. Supreme Court so that they can just say, well, we don't like this provision anymore, uh, so we're going to neglect it or we're going to nullify it. If that's what they mean by living, breathing constitution, no, I don't agree with that. And I think it's utterly repugnant to the very idea, not only of our constitution, but to the idea of any constitution. Because as I explained in my book, Written Out of History, the whole purpose, the only purpose to even have a constitution is to limit government, is to restrict it, to restrain it. And when you nullify provisions that are there to restrict and restrain government, you are jeopardizing individual liberty and thereby threatening the fundamental uh, dignity of the human soul. That's what this fight is about. And that's why I maintain this fight for constitutionally limited government is neither Democratic nor Republican. It's neither liberal nor conservative. This is simply an American idea. Well, the Constitution has no greater defender than you, Senator Lee. Again, this wonderful book is called Written Out of History, The Forgotten Founders Who Fought Big Government. Senator Mike Lee, thanks for joining me. Hey, thank you so much. I really appreciate the interview. Enjoyed that a lot. That's the show, folks. I hope you enjoyed it. 
Once more, if you're a small business that feels overwhelmed because you're managing too much, free yourself from administrative tasks and focus on your business goals with a Belay Virtual Assistant. To learn more about how a Belay Virtual Assistant can benefit you and the top 25 things Belay clients delegate to their VAs, visit belaysolutions.com slash kickassnews. That's belay, B-E-L-A-Y, solutions.com slash kickassnews. And thanks again to Senator Mike Lee for joining me on the podcast. Order his new book, Written Out of History, The Forgotten Founders Who Fought Big Government on Amazon. Or download the audiobook for free with a special trial offer from Audible at audibletrial.com slash kickassnews. You can keep up with Senator Mike Lee on his official webpage at lee.senate.gov and follow him on Twitter at at SenMikeLee. That's at S-E-N Mike Lee. Be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on iTunes and leave us a review while you're there. Don't forget to take our listener survey. It only takes five minutes at podsurvey.com slash kick. You can visit Kick-Ass News on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at at kickassnewspod. And be sure to recommend Kick-Ass News to your friends on your social media. And if you really want to help out, then donate to our GoFundMe campaign at gofundme.com slash kickassnews or click on the donate button at kickassnews.com. As always, I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickassnews.com. For now, though, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kickass News. Kick-Ass News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.